Good evening. This is Cinema 60. Excuse an old fool prying, son, but what does it all mean? Hmm? You can't mean anything now anymore. There's nothing anymore, is there? Anything at all? to be president of the bank before too long. Mm -hmm. I have my boat in the summer. We have friends. Anything at all. Hi, Jenna. Bart, before I even greet you, I got to say some things. Very important. Okay. First up, I want to thank everyone who's listening to Cinema 60. I want to let you know that we have a website. That includes all of our favorite screenshots from all of the, any given movies that we've done, a full list of information, the original poster art, links to where you can buy or stream these movies, uh, everything. All of this cool information, it's all on cinema-60.com. I don't know if you know this, because depending on where you're getting this podcast from, and we've never done any sort of plug for ourselves throughout all of these episodes, and here we are now. So I just want to give that real quick plug here. Also say that we're on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema60Podcast. If you like pictures, if, if pictures help you relate to movies, I know they do for me, go, go to our website, because lots of pictures. Right, and we want you to watch these movies. So, you know, check it out. And also, if you like the show, do us a favor. We haven't asked you for anything up until this point. Tell your friends. Uh, you know, nothing gets nowhere without a little help from our friends. It's so, always uh, the Beatles with you. We Jenna. are begging you. That's, that's damn right it's always the Beatles with me. And if you really like us, you can review us on iTunes, or you can like us on Spotify and all of this stuff, or like us on Facebook and Twitter because it helps to boost our standing and reach a larger audience. So that's it. That's my plug. So hello, Bart. <laughs> hello. So, okay. So I'm now, I'm going to take the reins for this episode a little bit, as I've already co-opted our introduction. So on previous episodes of Cinema 60, we've chosen directors and actors or noteworthy events and years and other things that have all represented a piece of 1960s history in some way or another for the theme of each episode. But in this episode, I just conned Bart into letting me indulge my own favorite theme, which is actually Faust. I am a big fan of Goethe's Faust. And as I've said in other podcasts... Or just as anyone asked me, uh, hey, Jenna, how are you doing? I'm a huge fan of the devil in general. Mm -hmm. Not in like a Richard Ramirez, like Night Stalker way, but I think Satan's like a really interesting and cool guy. And I'm willing to alienate all of our conservative Christian listeners by saying that. Well, if he's really like Peter Cook and bedazzled, then uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of the devil, too. Oh, my gosh. We're going to definitely talk about Peter Cook. <laughs> But um, I so so basically like my love for Faust for what it's worth real quick. It started in college when I took this really, really great course about Faust, mostly because I thought an academic setting was probably the best way to read something like that, which P.S. it really is. Plus, I already loved Bulgakov's Master and Margarita, uh, if anyone's read that book, which was on the reading list. And I and so I figured, ah, screw it. This is going to be great. And I was super blown away by this course, which was taught by um, a professor from the German department named Frederick Amrein. And because he really, he broke down not only the context of Faust, starting from the Middle Ages up to today, but he did such a great job of weaving together everything from history to philosophy to literature, opera, art. It was exactly what college courses should be. Anyhow, it turns out there's like a bunch of Faust movies that came out in 1960s. <laughs> 
And we're going to figure out why. That's the goal of this episode. Why are there so many damned Faust movies in the 60s? I think I have an answer, but we'll get to that later. So Faust, if you don't know, is basically... I'm going to be really quick about this if I can. I already know that half of you have already turned this off. (laughs) So I'm speaking to the ghost of all of those people. Well, even if you're not a fan of early 19th century German literature, (laughs) there's still a lot of great movies we're covering in this episode, so bear with us. And let me try and sell you slightly on Faust. I'm going to slightly be a salesman for Faust throughout this episode, but as Bart said, at the end of the day, we're really talking about a whole bunch of really cool to not-so-great movies. (laughs) (laughs) But so Faust, if you don't know, it's basically this, you know, it's a story about a man who sells his soul to the devil, right? And depending on which version you're hearing, his reasons for doing so vary from a whim to a bet to a last resort scenario. And what makes the story of Faust really unique and intriguing for me, is the fact that we have a main character, a hero, who's engaging directly with evil, and yet there's this sort of wiggle room on if this character is being truly and flatly condemned, right? This is a story of Faust is a story of shades of gray, and it sort of wrestles in part with the philosophical riddle of understanding the nature of evil, and this sort of concept that if God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnibenevolent, then how can evil exist? So the ability to choose between good and evil in a way represents within Faust a way towards greater, a greater sense of salvation. So it goes beyond a sort of blind following or the fear of damnation and it becomes a choice. So that's kind of what is interesting to me. And so our first movie is from 1960 and it is called Faust. Directed by Peter Gorski and uh, Gustav Grungens. Who plays Mephistopheles in it. This is literally a stage play that was just recorded. You know, this is German and all of the dialogues in German, but it was actually released in the U.S. without any subtitles. The dialogue, from what I could tell, is just literally the text of Faust. So when I was watching this, I ended up actually just whipping out my copy of Goethe's Faust and following along uh, in English. I feel like the only way really to get into this one is to just basically tell you guys the plot of Goethe's Faust specifically, which, as you may or may not know, is not the only version of Faust. Or you might not even know what I'm talking about, so I feel a little bit bad about this. But so let me just tell you, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe was born in, in the 1700s in 1749, in uh, Frankfurt to a pretty well-off family. And you can go to Frankfurt and visit his house, which is a museum that I went to once incredibly hungover, but I still had a good time. He had a really strict father, but he had this sort of imaginative mother who he had a closer relationship with. And long story short, throughout his life, through various circumstances and influences, he becomes very interested in things like alchemy and Shakespeare and medieval poetry and other sort of hermetic teachings. And so he starts to write Faust in his 20s, which is called the Er Faust. For those in the know, shout out to the Er Faust. But he doesn't really make a real go at, at finishing it until later in his life. And so when he finally does write it, it ends up being this huge epic, which is written in poetic verse. 
and it is in two parts. This 1960 version of the stage play that we're seeing of Faust is just part one. And that's all that was published in his lifetime or produced in his lifetime, right? So that as far as contemporaries knew, this was the entirety of Faust, just part one. I, it doesn't really come to much of a conclusion, so it, it does seem like there should be a second part coming, but... He published part two, the year of his death, but it was published in 1832. Uh, but it's not usually read in German schools the way that the first one is. It's typically kind of brushed under the rug because it's so esoteric. <laughs> so basically the plot of this stage play is that, and, and I think that it's important in general just to have a, a sense of what Goethe's Faust is in comparison to other versions. So that's something that we're going to, <laughs> we're going to get to. But basically we are opening on Mephistopheles' And he's in this like white face paint and he looks real devilish. And he's making a bet with God that he can corrupt Faust and take his soul. When we meet Faust, he is this old man who is a learned professor and alchemist and all of these things. And he's also suicidally depressed. He feels he knows all there is to know in the world and he sort of can't justify living any longer. And then he decides that death is a cheap way out. He starts to dabble in some sort of black magic, looking for more answers. And that's when Mephistopheles swoops in in the form of a black poodle and then bets Faust that he can solve all of his problems. And so Faust takes that bet and he makes a deal with Mephistopheles, essentially that he can never be satisfied and that, that there's nothing that Mephistopheles can do that will satiate his worldly brain. <laughs> I was looking for that poodle in this German version that I couldn't understand at all, and I, I never saw a poodle. You heard the sounds, but they didn't do anything. <laughs> That's the thing about this movie. It's really minimalist. Like, I thought the staging was pretty cool. It's very mid-century, considering it's only 1960. Yeah, especially when they get to the Valpurgis night party. That's very 60s. But uh, I had some trouble getting through this. I'll, I'll admit I fast-forwarded a bit because it was all in German. I knew the Faust story, but uh, just hearing a whole lot of German spoken and, and not understanding what anybody was saying, is uh, it's hard to get too involved, especially when it's just a film stage play. There is some creativity with the camera in it. There's definitely a lot of close-ups you wouldn't get if you were watching it from the audience. And, and the, the camera moves around within the set a bit, but it basically is just like it opens on a proscenium and it, it is the stage play. So it's not trying to be realistic in any way at all, but there are a few moments in it that are kind of visually exciting, like Valpurgis Night. And you really liked when Greta was in the nunnery. With now Mephistopheles, Faust, they go drinking for a bit. They do some bar tricks. Faust isn't very impressed. He then goes to a witch. He gets a, a potion that will de-age him, so it makes him younger. And then once he's young and handsome, he falls in love with this 14-year-old girl, Gretchen, who we will see multiple times throughout this episode, either as Marguerite or Margarita. And uh, he seduces her and then abandons her. <laughs> um, he's sort of, he's drawn to her for her innocence and he uses her for his own temporary pleasure. And she sort of naively expects that he's offering her true love and marriage, but he's so sort of caught up in his own quest for satisfaction and his own selfishness that he doesn't really see the damage he's causing. And he's not willing to settle for love specifically, even though that he comes very close to allowing that to satisfy him. But in the end, he then leaves her for this wild party in hell, this Valpurgis night. And then he, he sort of comes back 
and realizes what he did, he, that what he did to her and that he completely ruined her because this meant to take place in a day when women who were unmarried and pregnant are like literally thrown to the streets and, and beaten and shamed. And also he's working with the devil who does a bunch of shit like give her like a sleeping potion that makes her mom go to sleep so that Faust can take her off and bone. And then the sleeping potion the mother never wakes up from. Faust also kills her brother who's trying to defend her honor. But then when the brother is dying in the street, he basically, Gretchen rushes to his side and he's like spits in her face and calls her a whore. <laughs> um, so really, really uh, fun, great stuff happening for poor Gretchen here. So I- I'm kind of with you. I mean, like even watching it, even knowing what was going on for the most part, though I sure would have enjoyed subtitles, but we couldn't find them anywhere. Like there's not even bootleg ones out there. So I don't, you know, someone, if someone wants to go write a bunch of subtitles for this, I'm sure the world would be a better place. I'm sure there's a reason why it was released without subtitles. I mean, probably the purest thought that there's no way that Goethe's language could be translated into English. So we shouldn't even bother. You know, the scholars will, uh, will know German and will be able to watch it and appreciate it. German language audiences will be able to enjoy it and to hell with everybody else maybe (laughs) i mean i kind of at first i thought this was going to be one of the operas because there's multiple opera versions of faust but no this is just a straight up yeah it's a straight up reading of goethe and yeah i don't know if this is just it was too difficult for your your layman translator to do justice to or something but i mean there's plenty of translated versions of faust that are well done and and even rhyme a little bit the way that the german one did so they could have done it but I don't know. I thought this was pretty neat. I would say this is something, if you know Faust, this is worthwhile watching. Or if you know German, it might be worthwhile watching. But the only thing that was really fantastic was, as, as you alluded to before, there's a scene where Gretchen is in this like nunnery. And she's praying and, and she's pregnant and she's alone and the whole world hates her. Her family is dead and Faust has completely disappeared. And she's sort of praying to God about, you know, I don't know what to do and, and help me. And then it suddenly cuts to, like, I'm trying to even remember how they did it. Like, it was like the screen almost falls, like everything falls away and it opens up to this pit of dancers in hell. And it's wild. These costumes are super awesome. It's like, it's some mix of almost like Bauhaus costumes to like robots to like (laughs) everything. It was super cool. Moomin chants. So that was great. And that was really the most fun part. (laughs) Well, what's interesting about Faust part one is that it becomes Gretchen's story, really, and it sort of ends with her redemption in prison for killing her newborn child because she's kind of gone crazy because Faust has abandoned her and murdered her whole family, and, you know, things have gone really lousy for her. And, uh, you know, Faust even comes to try and save her, and she refuses to go. She sees that, oh, Faust doesn't really love me. He feels sorry for me, so I'm just going to stay here and rot in prison. And as she's about to die you hear a voice from heaven saying that you've been forgiven or you're going to heaven, Gretchen. And that's the end of the play. So it ends in a really unusual spot. And in uh, you know, none of these other versions of Faust that we're going to be watching take that route. They all kind of give a conclusion to Faust's story in a way that Goethe's Faust Part One does not. This was always uh, something longer that Goethe had been working on. And though he published Part One independently of Part Two, Uh, You know, there's always this idea that something was going to happen. I mean, there's no conclusion for Faust. And even when you're watching operas and other versions that take only Goethe's part one, which is typically everything. It's really, I'm, 
I'm going to definitely talk about part two. Don't you worry. But for everything else that we're doing, for the most part, and any most interpretations of Faust, it typically is only part one or some section of that. And then they give you the ending of it, which they sort of end up borrowing, I think, a bit from Marlowe. So now we can even get into then our second movie, which was Little Shop of Horrors from 1960. And you you think that Little Shop of Horrors has more to do with Marlowe's Dr. Faustus than it does Goethe's Faust? Yeah. So even before Goethe, there was a real Johann George Faust, who was a celebrated alchemist of the German Renaissance. And we're talking about like the 1400s and the 1500s, which is supposedly what inspired Christopher Marlowe to write the tragical history of the life and death of Dr. Faustus in the 1600s. That play is pretty much the story I think that most people know. It's a really straightforward telling of Faust as this necromancer who is uh, it's sort of tricked into selling his soul to Lucifer in Mephistopheles for 25 years of a sort of unlimited magical power. And he gets Mephistopheles as his servant for, throughout that time. And within this play, he mostly just wastes his powers on party tricks. And uh, in the end, he gets dragged to hell And either he gets torn asunder by demons, depending on which version you're reading, or he gets welcomed into hell sort of with open arms as a hero. It's sort of very lightly implied. You can read this play as this being sort of pro-Calvinist predestination play, you know, morality play that do bad thing, go to hell. Do not pass go, go right to hell. Or it's a satire. It can be read as a satire on these same ideas, depending on who you're asking in the 1500s. Um, And so Little Shop of Horrors, yeah, I mean, this is Roger Corman directed this one. And I actually had never watched the original Little Shop of Horrors. I hadn't either. And I didn't realize I'd never seen it before. But it was a delight. I mean, extremely, extremely low budget, shot in two and a half days. But it's got a really funny script. I mean, if it weren't for such a solid screenplay that was also just thrown together, but it's really just filled with Borscht humor and uh, just a lot of wordplay and, and silliness. It holds together really well. It's a shame that they couldn't have spent more money and time making it, but I thought it was great. This is like a straight up juice exploitation film. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's a thing, but this is totally a juice exploitation film. And Seymour, which I never considered before, and this ties back into my obsession with, uh, which is going to make Bart very unhappy, but uh, with Martin and Lewis, because Seymour is 100,000% a bootleg Jerry Lewis. Yeah. Completely. For sure. Between the name, which was Jerry Lewis's movie debut role in My Friend Irma, was Seymour, and uh, the physical comedy, the noises and the faces... The accent. Yeah, his klutziness. And, There's that scene yeah. where he literally Jerry yeah. Lewis is a guy to death because he's like throwing a <laughs> bottle and he hits the guy in the head and then he falls into the train tracks and gets run over by trains. Like, And all Seymour can do is stand in the sidelines making funny faces like, uh, you know, oh, that, that must have hurt. Yeah, exactly. Getting run over by that train. <laughs> must've, that must have hurt. <laughs> Yeah, I, this, my Jerry Lewis star was off the charts for this. Yeah, and Mr. Mushnik is every Jewish comedian. He's the owner of the plant shop where Seymour works, and he's bred this Venus flytrap with something else. 
I mean, everybody knows the Little Shop of Horror story, I imagine, but Seymour creates this man-eating plant, and it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, and it turns him into a celebrity botanist because of this giant, very unusual plant that he's growing. The catch is that Seymour has to feed this plant to human flesh in order for it to stay living. So that's kind of the deal with the devil that Seymour has made to achieve his success in life. But uh, I'm curious to know why you think this is more Marlowe's Faust than Goethe's. Well, it's funny. I never actually considered this a Faust movie whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. You're right. It totally is. I, I think that this is more Marlowe because at the end of the day, this is a morality play, especially this 1960 version. It's basically that Seymour, he makes this plant in order to woo a girl. He then has to keep it alive by continually feeding it worse and worse things until finally he's literally killing people in order to give it the flesh that it needs. And he's getting all this money and fame and fortune, but at what cost? It doesn't end well for Seymour. Yeah. Not to spoil anything. Spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think in the 80s musical version, Seymour and Audrey One get together, right? But uh, the original Little Shop of Horrors has a a downbeat ending or, you know, a morally justified ending where Seymour gets what's coming to him. I was a big fan of how they did the plant in this. Audrey Jr. Yeah. I mean, it's so cheap looking, but really effective. Basically a hand puppet. It kind of looked like a Muppet. And then it would get bigger and, you know, started as just like a hand that opens and closes this sort of mouth-shaped plant. And then as it gets bigger and bigger, clearly people's entire arms are being used to open and close Audrey Jr.'s mouth. Voiced by uh, Charles B. Griffith who I think deserves a lot of the credit for this movie being any kind of a success at all. He went on to do other things that people have heard of, like Wild Angels and Barbarella and Death Race 2000, but I don't think the screenplays in in those movies don't stand out in the way that this one does. It's just so many non sequiturs and and absurd moments and... uh, it made me want to seek out more of Charles B. Griffith's stuff and, and you know, really pay attention to some of his writing. I mean, you've got Dick Miller, who's in all of these Roger Corman movies, is just plays this guy who comes into the florist shop uh, so he can eat flowers. So that's, I mean, he loves flowers, but only so that he can eat them. And it's actually his idea for Seymour to market Audrey Jr. and to you know, become a celebrity because people will pay lots of money to come see this plant. And he's right. Dick Miller is right. And then there's this scene that has very little to do with anything, but it's one of the most memorable scenes in the movie because it's Jack Nicholson's debut or, you know, one of the first times he had a noticeable role in a film where he plays a masochist who goes to this really sadistic dentist. Jack Nicholson is like, he looks like a baby in this. And he, he has this really dark, weird, he's like getting off sexually on getting his teeth pulled out. The real dentist is a creep, but Seymour ends up killing him, you know, quote-unquote, accidentally. And Seymour is the one who actually ends up pulling more and more of Jack Nicholson's teeth because he asks him to. Yeah, he's, like, orgasming on screen while he, he gets it done. Like, it seems like Jack Nicholson just wandered on stage and was like, why don't we try this? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure what it has to do with the themes of the rest of the movie. Just going to show that uh, Seymour is more concerned with getting away with it than with what's right and what's wrong, I guess. Yeah, it's just like a really dark beat. Like all of the, this movie was super dark. You know, I guess it's my kind of humor because it's all about people 
being murdered in terrible ways. <laughs> but uh, it was it was like a little much even. I, like, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of if anything really made me laugh so much. There's The narrator for this movie is a police sergeant, Sergeant Joe Fink. And at one point in the narration, he says, my name's Sergeant Joe Fink. I'm a Fink. <laughs> and uh, that cracked me up. <laughs> <laughs> and I really like Mrs. Shiva, who keeps coming into the Mushnik florist because there's some you know, relative of hers who's died. So she basically comes in every day for some flowers for the funeral of, of another person who's died. And, of course, uh, you don't have to be Jewish to know that you sit Shiva when somebody dies. So, For a movie that has no Jews in it and was written not by anyone who was Jewish, this whole thing is so uh, hashtag ethnic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, it's like it almost flirts with anti-Semitism in a weird way, but it's not, like, mean. It's just very cliche. I can't imagine any Jew taking offense to this movie. No, it's not uh, offensive. It's just... I can only see Jewish people getting a kick out of this thing. I definitely love... I loved all the faces in the plant in the end. I thought we were done pretty damn well for for a Corman movie, especially. Yeah, extremely cheap looking, but... Well, the next movie was something that you chose that I'd, I never even heard of, but is streaming on Amazon right now, considering it's like this really weird little movie called The World's Greatest Sinner from 1962. Written and directed by Timothy Carey, who's also the star of the film. And uh, you may know him as the Weasley guy in Stanley Kubrick's The Killing or Paths of Glory. He's a Weasley guy in that, too. But he's also in uh, The Monkey's Head. He's got a nice little, little juicy role in that. Yeah, he's this character actor from the 60s who is clearly a little bit crazy. This was just a, a passion project of his that never got released Theatrically, uh, I think it got some like midnight movie showings uh, at the time, or you know maybe showed it for friends. But it doesn't quite feel finished. It's extremely cheap, and he clearly made it over you know, a series of years because the quality of it changes drastically from scene to scene. He has four different cinematographers, including Raymond Steckler, who's famous for a lot of low-budget junk like uh, Incredibly Strange Creatures Who Died and Became Mixed Up Zombies, which we mentioned in our 1964 musicals episode, and Edgar Ulmer, who's a well-known B-movie producer, Hollywood producer, director. He's uh, under a pseudonym. He was also a, a cinematographer on this thing. So it's you know somewhere between home movie and vanity project, and it's really just an opportunity for Timothy Carey to show how insane is and it's it it, (laughs) and it follows the Faust story to a certain degree I mean it clearly is inspired by Faust he's an insurance salesman who becomes dissatisfied with his life he doesn't want to sell insurance anymore and it's and that's actually for me that seems to be why I really connect with the Faust story is that it always starts with every one of these Faust characters there's a dissatisfaction with their life it's you know, this idea that I've done what's expected of me. I've followed this path. This is what you're supposed to do. Get married, have kids, get a job so that you can support your family. And, you know, it's just following the path of good doesn't lead to satisfaction. And I I think that's why the story is so relatable. 
I've done everything I'm supposed to. Why am I still dissatisfied with my life? And uh, so you start to question, well, what path should I follow if not the path of good? And uh, you explore some evil options. And, uh, and Clarence Hilliard, the character played by Timothy Carey, decides, yeah, I'm going to pick up a guitar and become a rock star and rename myself God and preach to people from the stage or off the stage that all men are immortal and if they follow him, they'll live forever. He makes a deal with this manager guy who's clearly Mephistopheles, the devil, and his manager says, oh, I'll take you right to the top. I'll make you the biggest thing in the world. And so he sort of becomes you know, this big rock star, cult leader guy who can't play guitar. He just kind of uh, you know, s- strums and yowls on stage, wears gold lame suits, and will rip off his jacket and, and ride around on the stage. It's good entertainment. What do you think? This was so weird. (laughs) Like, I'm all for weird movies. I was not prepared for how bizarre this was. Like, when you first mentioned this and you said it was really great, because this is the second time you've watched this. Yeah, and twice in within a year. Yeah, and I was all for it, and this was just so weird. (laughs) To me, it reminded me of, like, A Face in the Crowd and Wise Blood. Mm -hmm. And honestly, in Don Quixote, a little more even than Faust, but it was definitely a kind of a... Where do you see Don Quixote? Just the way that he sort of stops his whole life and then picks up Alonzo instead of Sancho. (laughs) And it's like, uh, (laughs) you know, hey, we're God now. Like, let's just... I'm, I'm God, so let's rock out. He, like... He goes to this jazz club and, like, loves the devil's music, essentially. And then, uh, you know, yeah, puts on this gold lame suit, Elvis style. A couple years before Phil Oaks' uh, greatest hits, in which he does exactly the same thing and also has a mental breakdown pretty shortly after that. For all your Phil Oaks facts, I got I got him. <laughs> um, yeah, and then, like... We're going to get Jerry Lewis and Dean Martin and Phil Oaks into every one of these <laughs> episodes. <laughs> not untrue. Anyhow... Alonzo's great. I actually thought that the actor who played him did a really good job. Uh, he, I felt like, oh, here's one person in this movie who might actually have had a, a career in the business. And it turns out, no, no, he's just, he was Alonzo in this movie. Well, I love that scene where he gets up and plays terrible guitar as he's like shaking like Elvis with the six piece Mexican backup band, just like trying <laughs> their best to deal with God Hillard. That was freaking great. <laughs> That was like you could I could have watched two yeah. hours of that. Like that was hilarious and perfect. Clarence's rise to the top is pretty entertaining to watch. I think once he uh, has a change of heart, and this is unlike any of the other Faust movies we watch, I believe, he actually finds finds the right path at the end. He follows the path of God. His daughter is very disappointed in the path that, that her father has taken and she brings him a bible and says uh, dad why are you being so evil what this is not how you're supposed to be and and he pushes her to the ground and says leave me alone and and he feels bad about that and he says god give me a sign that you exist that i should follow you and he sees the bible that his daughter has left on the ground and then there's a kind of much too long final third of this movie final act of this movie where he goes to the church and he steals some of the host the body of christ and he brings it home and starts poking it with a needle saying if you bleed i'll believe that you exist god yeah there's this like long shot of him just sticking a needle through a eucharist like 
And it's so strange. And then there's like this line appears on the ground and he follows it. See, it's funny. I actually wasn't sure that he was saved by the end of this. Was that your interpretation? Well, uh, whether he's saved or not, he decides that he's no longer God and that there is a higher power that exists. And so... See, I kind of felt like the ending... See, this this one reminded me of Marlowe's Faust in the sense that the ending was ambiguous enough because the ending of Marlowe's Faust is, you know, the uncensored version was him basically Faust running out of time, realizing that, like, he's about to get dragged to hell. And then he sees a light and he says, ah, Mephistopheles, you know, on the text. But it's like this question of can this be read as like, ah, Mephistopheles or ah, Mephistopheles. So this this kind of interesting ambiguity there of whether or not he found God or that he's damned himself by being God this whole time. But I also thought that it seemed unfinished, this whole thing. I, it seemed like there was more that he could have yeah. done, that he maybe ran out of money and patience of other people around him. <laughs> <laughs> I did like one line. He says, I'm not a preacher. I'm not a drunk. I'm just a politician. (laughs) (laughs) This idea that like going into politics is his way of becoming God, I think is we're, we're seeing that a lot more (laughs) right now. Also, what was that? There's a great opening song to this. Well, the music was, I I can't remember if the opening song is Frank Zappa, but this was the first film score that Frank Zappa ever did, or the first recorded music actually that Frank Zappa did. Which should tell you a lot about this movie. If you're a fan of the acting style of Nicolas Cage or you know, Crispin Glover <laughs> yeah. or, or people like that, you definitely need to check out this movie because Timothy Carey is totally unhinged and uh, it's awe-inspiring. There's an honest-to-God brilliant movie somewhere in here. It's just drowned <laughs> under the weight of incompetent filmmaking. <laughs> yeah, it's so poorly put together. There's like I mean, five there's... different cameramen or something, and you see your like reflections of the camera, or you see this like jettering and the panning, and, and it's just like very, it takes you out of it. It's edited with a chainsaw and, and uh, <laughs> masking tape. None of the scenes flow together very well. It clearly didn't shoot all the footage he needed to shoot to make anything edit together. But it's still, it's... Timothy Carey holds your attention, for sure. He gets you through this movie, all right. Now we jump a few years to 1966. Another one that I suggested to Jenna is something that might fit into this whole Faust theme, Seconds, directed by John Frankenheimer. You ended up liking it. I loved it. Love this. This was so good. And this was such a great example. I love things. You know, as much as I like Faust, I like the original plays of it. I like all this crap. But like, I love when you get something that's just like subtle. I love subtle interpretations of things. And I feel like that's what is missing in the world right now. Because you have so much more breathing room. You have so much more chance to sort of chew on ideas that might have come out of the original text without being chained by the original text and that's something where like whenever they do like book movies especially like harry potter for example (laughs) and Mm -hmm. the fans get all pissed because that like oh you left out the one you know sentence in this one chapter it's like i don't care like i don't want to see that like my favorite harry potter and this is going to be very controversial for harry potter people um it was the third one you're gonna say goblet of fire no the third one which was um 
Oh, everybody likes Azkaban. No, every, no, the book everyone likes, but the movie everyone hates. Because the movie no. was totally... I don't know. I hate all the movies. <laughs> they are all mostly bad. I'm going to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, but anyhow, I just I love that, the, that this was an interpretation of something. So Seconds, I super loved. And seconds, I wanna. I now want to give you guys more. Fa- it's been it's been a little bit since I've given you some Faust information, so I'm gonna go ahead and go right into it. Talk about what parts of Faust this movie picks up on, because you don't watch it thinking, oh, this is the Faust story, but you realize that, oh yeah, this is kind of a modern updating. It's we're definitely talking about sci-fi here, but it's realistic enough, and you can sort of relate to the morality at play in the in this movie in a way that you can't with some of these low-budget comedy versions we've seen, or or the original, like based on this guy who's having this metaphysical anguish two hundred years ago. I, I think you can really relate to seconds very directly. So here's the thing: I want to give some context because I think it will enrich your interpretation of the movie. Perhaps it did for me. Here's what I loved about Goethe's Faust specifically, which is that I think that it is easy to connect to. The way that I was taught Goethe's Faust is to read it as two different stories, these two parts that talk to probing the boundaries of consciousness. So part one of Faust, the Gretchen story, it's not just about making this deal with the devil. It's about essentially the boundaries of your minds. So Mephistopheles is trying to satisfy Faust's restless desire for more. And Faust then, in turn, is following his sort of his unconscious desires through part one, which then explains sort of why he uses and loses Gretchen so fast without a care about her, is that he's exploring impulse. You know, he's going from id to ego to super ego. And that's what part one is essentially about. Part two of Faust, which we've alluded to, but I didn't really get into. Part two, as it was taught to me, is about testing the boundaries of the superpersonal consciousness, <laughs> a.k.a. the consciousness of like nature or of the divine as it was experienced in medieval times. So how we know and define the structure of our own consciousness as human beings now is not how, say, like the ancient Greeks define consciousness. So bear with me. Like, for example, the concept that we have, like, thoughts inside of our heads and and monologues that are produced within our own minds and that the world around us is only exterior is a a modern way of thinking. So earlier periods and classical, like, Greek way of thinking is, and I'll just say, this is where I get a little shaky, quite frankly, on this stuff, so I apologize if I completely lose you. (laughs) Or if you're a professor who's like, oh, that's wrong. But earlier periods thought that they thought of the exterior as the interior. So internal monologues were being essentially projected into us through on high, and they were more macrocosmic in nature. And we can even see that in in the sort of hangover of the origin of words that we have from Greek, such as the word idea actually breaks down to I have seen. And if you want more information, too, on this whole concept, and that's, this is as far as I'm going to get with it. I'm not going to totally bore you guys. But if you want more information, there's this really great book called Saving the Appearances by Owen Barfield. And it's really fascinating. And it's so hard to wrap your mind around because literally you have to change how you're thinking of everything. But so all of this to say is that Goethe is exploring human consciousness in an almost Freudian way in part one. But in part two, it's more about achieving an understanding of the primordial consciousness and the shedding of rational or scientific thinking in order to be closer to God and art. You know, he travels through the mythological ancient worlds to get there. So the plot of part two is basically Faust traveling through time, interacting with a bunch of mythological figures 
He has a love affair with Helen of Troy. And then Mephistopheles invents paper money and like ruins the world economy and creates civil war. So the end of Faust and what we don't get from, you know, the 1960 version and from part one is that essentially Faust, after all of this, he ends up conquering lands for an emperor, which helps end the civil war. And he lives to be ridiculously old, like 100 or over or something. Uh, He loses his sight. And in his last moments, he thinks about what he can do better for the lives of his subjects. And he suddenly experiences this momentary bliss, which then causes him to drop dead. (laughs) And then Mephistopheles thinks that he's won the bet. Because in this moment of bliss, he was satisfied. But God intervenes and he has his angels sort of whisk Fausts up to heaven. I think it because it was essentially, if I remember correctly, that this moment of bliss was about satisfaction and helping others. So Faust only half loses his bet. Or so God interprets it. And, that, you know, who's going to argue with it? Hmm. But what is really interesting, too, is at the end of Goethe's Faust is that Goethe's heaven is this place of perpetual work. And you see angels toiling in the fields and stuff like that. So essentially, it boils down to this idea that complacency, like what's promised from Mephistopheles, is the true hell. And that striving is heaven. And so now we got this interesting movie, Seconds, right? So Seconds is, well, this uh, older middle-aged gentleman, Arthur Hamilton, played by John Randolph, is, you know, just kind of this uh, mopey guy, not too happy with his life. Well, he gets a phone call from his friend who he thought was dead. And he says, how could this be? And he's like, come to this address. What do you have to lose? Like, what, like, are you even that happy? And we kind of see that Arthur is in this sort of, he's in like a marriage. It's not like terrible. It's just like a little bit, it's totally stagnant. You know, he doesn't seem that thrilled about his job, even though he's doing fine. He's like a banker. So he kind of gives into temptation and he's intrigued enough that he ends up at this address, which ends up being this like butcher. He gets put in this van. He has to sit in the back and he doesn't know where he's going. And then he ends up at this mysterious office. And then this man walks in and says, so let's discuss your death and let's figure out how how you want to die. And Arthur is just totally freaked out but it essentially there's no way for him to come back from it now that he's already walked through this far this guy's telling him basically that uh, we're a company that facilitates the death of your current life and then we will give you plastic surgery and relocate you and let you live out all of your wildest dreams as a new person and what we do is we'll take money from your insurance payout when you die to fund us and fund some of this and then uh, off you go but you know the catch is you that's it like you can't go back to your old life you can't contact them and you can't walk out of this it's too late you're, you're already here so he ends up getting this plastic surgery and he becomes rock hudson which is pretty fucking great quite frankly <laughs> <laughs> yeah how can he be dissatisfied with that and he becomes tony wilson or actually his full name is like antiochus right Mm-hmm. They ask him, well, what do you want to be? And he says, well, I always, you know, I've always painted. I always like to draw. So they say, okay, great. You're an artist. They send him over to Malibu. He lives in this big, gorgeous house. He has this like manservant butler who is willing to help him transition into his new life. And it kind of goes from there. You forgot him meeting with the head of the company, this company that gives you a brand new life, who is very clearly playing the Mephistopheles role. Uh, he's no man. He looks like the Colonel Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Just, you know, 
old glasses, and when they get the shadows just right on his face, he has kind of a devilish look to him, and he's feeding Arthur all these lines of temptation, uh, you know, just talking about how his wife and his daughter, and what it, what do you mean to them anymore? I mean, what are you losing if you take this path and become somebody completely new? And it's in this Mephistopheles character, who isn't in much of the movie. He's in this sort of middle section in, in the end, but he's very much the devil and, and Wyatt. This is unmistakably a Faust story. But the devil, the old man, manages to convince Arthur, at least in the moment, and, and also because he feels like he has no other choice to go through with this, becoming a completely different person, putting his old life behind him. You know, if you get anesthetized and wake up and you look like Rock Hudson, how could you be unhappy? But Arthur is definitely unhappy in his new life in Malibu as Rock Hudson, as a a carefree painter with, you know, all the money he needs and, and nothing he needs to prove to anybody. So he spends weeks, months, just kind of moping around, not talking to anybody in his beautiful Malibu beach home. Finally, he runs into a woman on the beach, Nora, And he has a connection with her, and she takes him to this Bacchanalian party. It's Valpurgis Night. Yes, I think it might be the only other movie to have a Valpurgis Night, to include that part of the Faust story. But yeah, it's just a a bunch of naked hippies. Full frontal nudity. Pounding grapes with their feet in a tub. Yeah, I know that that was edited to a certain degree with the original theatrical release. And by the way, this movie was a total flop when it came out. It was, you know, one of those booted con things but now has got an amazing reputation everybody loves this movie i think the real problem was that it just was such a change of pace for rock hudson and in a way it kind of wrecked his career it sort of sent him in a totally new direction he was just you know a romantic lead for years and years and big box office draw and after this movie he sort of went in a darker sci-fi sort of ugly direction like his movies are all about these morally corrupt men and uh, I don't know maybe we can do an episode on Rock Hudson at some point and try and get to the bottom of that but yeah this movie just was a huge flop and I think that maybe the reinsertion of some of this nudity into future releases of the movie had something to do with it gaining a new audience but it shows you a lot more than you tend to see in a movie from 1966 black and white yeah with really really great cinematography from James Wong Howe it's just shot beautifully from some sort of fisheye lens stuff to the just fantastic lighting and angles and just everything is just framed so well. This whole thing is, I mean, like rarely do I feel like uh, movies are, are a work of art, but like this is James Wong Howe at his absolute best. Yeah, it's a nice looking movie. It also doesn't surprise me that Rock Hudson loved this movie and, and it even changed the way that he did things because, he, you know, at the time he was in the closet, essentially. And for a movie like this about becoming another person and, and living your life as another person, I think that checks out. That's something that would disturb him. Yeah. Or depress him. I'm not sure how much we can psychoanalyze Rock Hudson on the basis of this one movie, but it definitely taps into something that I can relate to, for sure. It's just, and and it is, it's a big part of the whole... Faust's story is this continual dissatisfaction as you know you, you know, have these dreams and you think oh if I can just achieve these things if I can just you know if, if somebody could deliver exactly what I want in a package and I could and that could be me I, I'll finally be satisfied and of course you're not satisfied it's sort of the, the Faust is the story of this sort of eternal searching you know life is this endless search for meaning and that is kind of the point of life. 
And anyway, Arthur Hamilton is not satisfied with this life. And part of it is that it was not completely by his own choice. I mean, this was sort of his dream life in the back of his mind, but he wasn't about to go and try and accomplish this on his own. And he realizes that Nora, who he meets on the beach and sort of changes his outlook a bit, was a plant from the company. She was an employee of the company and that everybody in the neighborhood where he lives is a reborn. So there are all these men who've had, uh, and it's exclusively men who have changed their lives completely. There's definitely some gender commentary in here, too, that this is an exclusively male fantasy. Whether that's true or not, the perspective of this movie is true. that... <laughs> is that this is something that males fantasize about, becoming, you know, having a completely different life. Well, there's that line from Colonel Sanders. He says, you've got what every middle-aged man in America would like to have, freedom, real freedom. And that's definitely the way that they seem to be pulling these men into this scheme, which it's really interesting because later on it really gets implied that this is like a money-grubbing, creepy company. Like there's a, <laughs> in the end, he talks about the profit-sharing board of directors and all of this stuff and admits that there's a high failure percentage, but it's such a financial burden that they have to keep going and keep trying. So it's it's kind of interesting even that this company is really out in it for its own selfish gains and yet here they are sort of marketing this and pulling people in with this concept that you know your life is miserable and and now you can have true freedom exactly what every middle-aged man in 1960s america desires yeah. and it's this movie has a killer ending it goes to some terrifying places and uh, i don't want to spoil it i feel like there should be at least one movie per episode where we <laughs> we, we, we make a point of not spoiling the ending because uh, you know if you're going to watch just one movie from this episode make it this one and, and we won't spoil the ending but it's great yeah i agree with you this is something you all have to watch but i think what you were talking about before i think i think this movie for sure is about dissatisfaction in the way that goethe's is but instead of making a bet that he can never be satisfied, he instead sort of is chasing this dream of satisfaction blindly into this irreversible situation. And how this movie sort of, it's about being defined by society or being defined by yourself. Because he starts off defined by expectations from society and then he sort of sells his soul to be remade anew, only to find himself being now defined by everyone around him. But this time, the dream is it's his. This is what he wanted to be, but it's not earned. So he's only this artist because everyone around him accepts that he's an artist. But as you said, they're all employees who exist only to praise him. So then when he sort of rejects this false role playing and he wants to start again and he wants to make his own rules the next time. But that's not allowed. It's like he unlocks a true key to satisfaction, which is living without boundaries and living beyond societal and, and mental cages but he sort of then has to be put down for having that realization. <laughs> My other interpretation is, is this about how you can't give up, which is maybe what you were driving at before, this idea that you can't let mistakes rule your life. The second that you've become satisfied in settling is when your life is sort of destroyed. Well, I mean, yeah, every one of these stories starts with either a suggestion of suicide, like the main character has been driven to a point where he feels like he might as well kill himself or even, you know, literally does try to kill himself. And it's at this point that the devil appears and, and shows him a new path. I mean, I think the lesson from Faust is that you've got to keep striving. If you stop striving, you're as good as dead. 
you, you might as well be dead. What was interesting about Seconds is that his life, it was only miserable when a third party then came in to tell him to feel that way, that he was fine otherwise. Except his wife has been aware of his dissatisfaction for the last 12 years of their marriage. She would try and try to get through to him and, and figure out what he needs, what they can do to make this all work for him, and she just gave up at a certain point. And you get some scenes at the beginning with the two of them where it's, they like each other well enough, they get along, but there's nothing much there between them that either one of them really needs to hold on to. The audience realizes it before Arthur does, perhaps, about how dissatisfied he is with his current life. I felt that this was really, really intriguing to watch in the context of Faust, but I also then, I don't know that I would have thought about it without being prompted like this. And what I loved about this movie is that there's so many different ways to sort of interpret it and take it on however many levels. You can take it as a just a straight up weird sci-fi. You can take it as like, you know, it could also just be about depression. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like, you know, you're miserable here. Like, okay, now you're Rock Hudson and you're an artist and everyone loves you. Oh, you're still miserable? Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love this. This was so good. And it was definitely disturbing and depressing and intriguing and i was like thinking about it for days after i watched it it's also the kind of thing that's like i want to now go back to college and just like write a paper on this one faust though there's so many parallels to this with goethe's faust and and again it, it really ties into this idea of stretching the boundaries of your mind and sort of understanding what your place is in the universe like that and then understanding about satisfaction and the curiosity about the world and and it, it was a mental delight to watch this movie not to sound super pretentious but it really was it was really really intriguing well and i think you do have to be the right sort of person to connect to this story and faust in general you have to be someone who I guess you don't have to be depressed, but there has to be sort of this nagging dissatisfaction in your life that keeps driving you forward in order to really understand what these movies are trying to say to the audience. I mean, I could see a lot of people not being able to connect at all. I mean, there's definitely a part of me who could say, yeah, an artist in the Malibu Beach who looks like Ruck Hudson, I'll, I'll take that life. That sounds great. <laughs> I'll take that life, man. I would 100% do that. Rock Hudson's so good in this. He's he so good in this. Some of the acting in it is a little weak, I have to say. Some of the, the dialogue is a little on the nose. Maybe it's because I've seen it three or four times. But Rock Hudson just is completely great in this movie. And he's only in about a half of it. <laughs> I guess more than a half. But it takes a while for him to show up. But he's great. Well, next we'll move on to probably the one movie that maybe people have seen from this episode, Bedazzled, 1967. Pretty big hit at the time. British film, but it made its way over to America and uh, got a lot of viewings. Played on a lot of screens. A lot of people saw it. And it's a Cook and Moore movie. The first one. Great comedy duo. British comedy duo that we have never mentioned on the show so far, which almost feels terrible because they're very 1960s, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. Well, British audiences would know them from their TV show. 
1967 was their first film, Bedazzled, but they had been a comedy team for quite some time before that. And then they made several more films together after this, you know, before Dudley Moore took off for Hollywood and, and left poor Peter Cook, who's arguably, or maybe not even so arguably, the, the more talented of the two. Really? I think so. <laughs> I've never been a, a huge Dudley Moore fan. I, I mean, he's good at what he does, but... I have to say, and we have to point this out, because I, I think this is the one thing Dudley Moore doesn't get enough credit for. I will. All right, I'll go ahead and say I like Peter Cook better than Dudley Moore, but Dudley Moore wrote all the music for this. And the music's great. And he's a really accomplished musician in general. And actually the Dudley Moore trio is solid jazz music. It's really good. So I have to say that as a human being, I think Dudley Moore might have more skills. (laughs) (laughs) Peter Cook famously disappeared into the background, which everyone sort of, oh, whoa, is Peter Cook. But he came out and was like, look, I'm just doing it for fun. And he claimed that he was never chasing fame in the way that Dudley Moore was. And so he was completely satisfied. And the trajectory of his career, even though I think everyone was disappointed because they kind of wanted more from him and to really see him step up. But he never really bothered was what it came down to. Yeah, and I'm going to jump in here and say, for those of you who don't know who Peter Cook is, he's the guy in The Princess Bride who leads the wedding and says, Mowage. So now that I've said that, (laughs) probably 90% more of you know who he is. But he's great in this. He is the devil, otherwise known as George Spigot. He comes across Stanley Moon, played by Dudley Moore, short order cook who is infatuated with the waitress at his restaurant but he's too shy and reserved and he thinks of himself as too much of a loser to even speak to her and he just you know sees his life as hopeless he doesn't know how he's ended up as a short order chef in this crappy restaurant so he goes home to kill himself and the devil shows up just as he fails just as he breaks the pipe that the noose is hung from and drops to the ground and he says listen stanley i've got a deal for you I'll give you whatever you want. I'll give you seven wishes. Your wildest dreams will come true. Just sign over your soul to me. I'm in competition with God, and whoever gets to 480 billion souls first or something wins the contest. And Stanley says, "Uh, all right. You know, after a a series of comic scenes where Peter Cook proves that he is actually the devil, Mephistopheles. Well, Stanley says you're a nutcase. And then Peter Cook says, well, they said that about Freud and Galileo and Jesus. And Dudley Moore says, well, they said that about a lot of nutcases, too. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, the series of wishes that George Spigot fulfills for Stanley, they're not that entertaining. That's kind of my biggest problem with this movie. Like, I I love the setup. You know, I love the two of them. They have great chemistry, good comic timing. And and when the devil is casually like scratching records and tearing pages out of books just to fuck with people, that's really entertaining. But then when it shifts into these very specific wishes that Stanley has to get his object of desire, Margaret, played by Eleanor Braun, who's great in this, I, I just don't think there's quite enough to this movie. These little scenes where, you know, in his first wish, Stanley wishes he was articulate so that you know he could talk to Margaret and she would be impressed by him. So the devil makes that happen. He's very articulate and she's very impressed, but she doesn't want anything to do with him physically. So that's how each of these dreams plays out. I mean, in a way, it's more the Aladdin story than Faust in certain ways. I mean, the, this movie clearly references Faust in, in a bunch of different ways, but the actual arc of the story is very much the, the genie in the bottle, the seven wishes thing, and the wishes never quite turn out the way that the wisher has planned. 
It's got funny moments, but I, I don't find this to be the laugh riot that it maybe could be if there's a little more to it. Yeah, it's such a bummer because I think Cook and Moore as a team, their television show is really fun. It's really funny today, even. I mean, granted, you have to be a jerk like me who like at least has patience for older television, but... If you can sit through a comedy sketch that's longer than a 30-second YouTube video, then you'll get something out of cooking more. It's really solid and, and weird and funny. Well, their stage show, Beyond the Fringe, was a big hit, and it was definitely a huge influence on the Monty Python guys. Like, there would be no Monty Python without cooking more. And that's a little bit of the problem with Bedazzled for me, too, is that it doesn't go quite as absurdist as Monty Python would a couple of years after this movie. And you're sort of seeing where Cook and Moore almost got, but didn't quite get. Just could have been tighter all around. My theory with this is that I don't think it should have been directed by Stanley Donnan. He just like hangs around this movie like a massive weight. Like, <laughs> I just think that he's a great director when it comes to like a big brassy musical comedy. But when it comes to this sort of subtle, more modern comedic taste... He's not the right guy for it. The issue being just in how he shoots it, which is such a, it's so integral to comedy. You can't shoot a comedy that's just these sort of wide shots of two people being posed really artistically where one man's sitting in a chair on the right and another man is being seen in the reflection of a mirror in the middle of a window, you know, and then they're both saying like really witty, dry lines like it just doesn't work <laughs> like you have to see expressions you have to get then reaction shots you know like these things just on their own it just it totally stifles this because I actually think that the script here is really smart and fun and like it is like I agree with you like it could have been bigger everything could have gone more and it could have had more fun just you know pick up the pace the you know but that's on don and that's totally on don and he yeah. should have picked <laughs> yeah, up the no, pace it is, yeah. like on one hand though i think there's actually a legitimate academic discussion about the nature of good and evil happening in the seams of this movie which i really enjoyed yeah. thinking about it uh, you know in the context of faust like and while the script is more marlowe in the sense that it follows you know there's no gretchen there's none of that it's just it's more about getting these wishes and having a, a sort of time of your life and then I'm going to drag you to hell. I'm taking your soul thing. Mm -hmm. But they sneak in these little lines that actually are more like Goethe in that, you know, there's literally a line, which is exactly about this concept of choosing good or evil in order to find salvation, where Peter Cook says, because Dudley Moore gets annoyed at him after a while about, you know, why are you doing these mean things to people? And it's all this, like, as you said, like these sort of minute, obnoxious, shitty things that just kind of ruin people's days. But it's nothing horrendous. <laughs> he doesn't, like, kill anyone, but he just ruins people's temporary uh, sense of sanity. And he says, why are you doing this? And, and Peter Cook says, well, you know, I'm giving them the chance to be happy. He says this theory is that, you know, in order for people to be really good, they have to make a free choice between good and evil and be good. And I'm a vital part of God's plan. And they're like, and I provide the evil. And it's like, shit, like, yeah, that man, it's like straight up academic. But then there's also some interesting stuff that they managed to shove in here about women, like the, the male-female dynamic and male privilege. <laughs> Funny enough, for something that like, you know, is full of gropey comedy sequences, you know, especially with Raquel Welsh, who's all over the poster of this. And, and all she does is she plays one of these seven deadly sins. She plays Lust. And she's in it for all the five seconds. Yeah, it just amounts to shoving her bosom in, uh, in Dudley Moore's face a few times, and that's about it. Yeah, and it's, she's sort of, not, I don't even understand why she's, I mean, she looks great, but like I don't understand why she's brought up as even being yeah. part of this movie, quite frankly, because 
we have Peter Cook in Little Red Socks right there, so I don't, you know. Yeah, the seven deadly sins were kind of a bust in this. They didn't quite know how to use him, although having uh, Dame Edna show up as Envy was kind of entertaining. But I like the bit with Eleanor Braun being, I think it was basically that she's, the next wish that Stanley Moon makes is that he wants her to be more physical. He says, I want to be rich. Let's get rid of the courting stuff. Like, I just want her to, to physically want me all the time. Go. And then it turns out that the devil sort of doesn't, he does it and he doesn't because basically she just becomes super randy for everybody. And, uh, you know, so she's sleeping with any man that, that comes her way. Eleanor Braun has a great time in this movie. And I think there's kind of a, a really interesting story if if this movie had been retooled to be about her. Because I, what I find really fascinating is in each of these wishes, we sort of get Stanley's version of Margaret in all of these, where she's, you know, this extraordinary woman who's passionate about this or some ideal, some like put up on a pedestal ideal of of Stanley's, but he doesn't have any sense of her as a real woman. She just is sort of this creature of extremes. But it's really interesting when you get to see Margaret in the real world, when she's like with the police inspector trying to figure out what happened to Stanley Moon. Did he kill himself? Where is he? You know, they're dragging the lake for his body and she's kind of helping out saying, I didn't really know him. And you see that she's just this sort of perfectly ordinary person who has a hint of kindness to her. She doesn't care that much about Stanley, but she doesn't want him to be dead. And just sort of the contrast between this very ordinary person that she is in reality and this sort of ideal of what Stanley thinks she is. Like a movie could have been retooled in that direction and I would have loved it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love the quote from Peter Cook where afterward he says like, oh, well, if she had murdered somebody, you would have hid evidence and shielded her from the police. But here she is having a a harmless bit of fun with another man and now you want to strangle her. Typical, you know. So even it's, mm-hmm. it's interesting that even the movie, despite the fact that it's giving you all of these sort of scenes of Randy women and Raquel Welsh in a bikini, but the script is aware of it, you know, like there, there's at least a degree of self-awareness that is, is actually quite funny and smart. It's a very smart script that just, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe it is Stanley Donnan's fault. He just doesn't know how to direct a, a snappy comedy like this. We didn't like his other movie from 1967 either, Two for the Road. But he's a great director. What? <laughs> I know, that's the problem. He's great. I, I, don't, I don't want to be like, ah, Stanley Dunn. But it's like, dude. I'll say that the, the my favorite scene in this, of course, is the scene where Stanley's trying to figure out why the devil got kicked out of heaven. And Peter Cook jumps up. They're, they're, all, they're all like meter readers and they're giving everyone tickets, <laughs> which is, you know, mm-hmm. another little act of evil. And uh, he jumps up on a mailbox and, you know, he says, okay, I'm going to sit here and I want you to dance around me and, and praise me. And Lee Moore does that for about 30 seconds until he says, this is boring. Can we change places? And and the devil's like, well, that's how I felt. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you you might argue, oh, oh, this is a a smart script that was poorly made. They should remake this movie. But uh, I'm pretty sure the Brendan Fraser, Elizabeth Hurley version from 40 years later is far worse than this version. You know, I saw that when it came out and I remember liking it at the time, but I really should rewatch it because I I don't know. (laughs) I don't remember it enough. And also, I mean, you know, if you need another reason to watch this, this, this movie ends with fart noises and nuns on trampolines. Yeah. The nuns on trampolines is, uh, it's a letdown. (laughs) Yeah. It's not, not as hilarious as they think it is. And yet it's, you know, besides Raquel Welch, it's the image from this movie that you're most often presented with. 
But the same year, although released in the United States the year after, is a straight-up version, pretty much, well, I don't know, you'll be able to tell me this, but it's a, it's a straight version of Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Richard Burton, directed by Richard Burton, and the person who directed this play on stage with him, Neville Coghill, they directed the movie together. And it was a bore. I couldn't even see how this would be exciting on stage, but I guess it got raves. But the, the movie version that they put together is just totally dramatically inert. I got so little out of it. It was a chore to get through. It's got great sort of hammer style creepy atmospherics going on but other than that there's not a whole lot to it having read the marlowe yourself did you get any more out of this than i did and how faithful is it to the play i think it's pretty faithful this i didn't read along with <laughs> it seems like it is just mostly a straight retelling of marlowe's faust and boy is richard burton just sleepwalking through it I was so disappointed in this. This is actually part of the reason why I wanted to do this episode is that I hadn't seen this version. And I thought, hey, here's a stage actor. I, I like Richard Burton well enough. This can't be bad. And it turns out it, it can. <laughs> it's just so boring. It's basically, I mean, like, I've never seen Richard Burton just look so inert. Well, actually, we didn't even mention him real quick for Bedazzled. My favorite part is the freaking song oh. about you fill me with inertia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how could we have forgotten Drimble Wedge and the vegetation? There's a few moments in Bedazzled that are just so good. But no, Dr. Faustus, I mean, it's literally Richard Burton being like, bell, book, and candle, candle, book, and bell, forward and backward, curse Faustus to hell. And you're like, oh, my God. There's not a pulse in a single actor in this. And then Elizabeth Taylor just sort of like walks in and out. She's completely mute for the entire thing. Yeah, she doesn't have any lines, so she comes off a little better than Richard Burton does. <laughs> in her like Goldfinger-inspired <laughs> silver body paint. Well, they paint her so many different colors in this movie. She's green at one point. She's silver. They paint her white. I mean, I guess she's Helen, but she's also Alexander the Great's wife and, you know, various historical beauties. Every fantasy that Dr. Faustus has, every lustful fantasy, is either this room full of anonymous naked women or it's Elizabeth Taylor as a different historical beauty. And uh, neither one seems like anything to sell your soul for. <laughs> <laughs> and plus she's walking through these sets that just are like purple and black, fake trees. Like it looks like a, the most cliche Halloween set you've ever seen. You know, Mephistopheles is just like a young bald guy. He's not very spooky. He looks good, though. I mean, he's... <laughs> he's got the right look for Mephistopheles. I like when he cries, when he thinks about being kicked out of heaven. There's a couple of... There's a garden sequence in this that kind of reminded me of Pink Narcissus, which is like this gay porn art movie that's utterly fantastic looking if you can deal with gay porn. It's just that this sort of classical, like, color gel lighting, really clearly fake set. I mean, it feels like, that's the other thing, this is so set-bound, this movie. It just, it's really works against everything. It is pretty homoerotic, that Garden of Eden type scene, isn't it? All it is. <laughs> you know, oiled up men who are prancing around and, and leaping through the air in slow motion. 
I couldn't even follow why he was in this Garden of Eden in the first place. The way that this is read, you just you fall asleep. I mean, I had a hard time paying attention to this, and it's like there's a terrible <laughs> sequence about farting priests that basically serves to wake you up from everything else because it's, otherwise it's, it's not funny. It's just some action, finally. Yeah, so what's the connection there between Bedazzled and Dr. Faustus where it includes a lot of uh, raspberries? The <laughs> noise is, plays, a, plays an important role in, in both films. Is that in the original Marlowe? <laughs> uh... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's the noise that Stanley uses to leave an unsuccessful wish and it's also the noise that an invisible dr faustus uses to taunt these priests or these monks in this monastery or whatever they are i mean you might be onto something there for me i mean i thought that this whole movie was just done so that it was like it was a joke from richard burton just to call elizabeth taylor lucifer <laughs> like it just felt like a commentary on his personal life more than than like a, even a version of faust <laughs> <laughs> It also kind of reminded me of the Galaxy song from Monty Python. <laughs> Just the way that they walk through space. <laughs> it had that look, yeah, when he's standing in front of the blue screen image of the night sky. is very. Whenever life gets you down, Mrs. Brown. This is the one to skip, for sure. I will say that for this one, kind of like Bedazzled, in the hands of another director, I think this would have rocked. I think you could have done this, but you really would need someone. You need, like, Ken Russell to do it. Like, you need someone that really has fun with it and really is just, like, tossing visual stimuli at you for just, like, the solid time. (laughs) Gigantic erect penises and such. That is what was missing from this. (laughs) Which one of us wants to tackle this final film? We're, We're both pretty mystified, but also really pretty entertained by the Spanish film The Strange Case of Dr. Fausto from 1969. Directed by Gonzalo Suarez and uh, again, Starring the director, written by the director. There's something about the Faust story inspires these vanity projects where this guy wants to get in there and do everything. This is the dream project for a lot of 60s men, I guess. Write and direct and play Faust or Mephistopheles. Well, so this was interesting. I mean, number one, this movie is super 1969. It's really (laughs) bizarre. But it also, so now in this one, we kind of start to mix. Not only is he mixing both Marlowe and Goethe, But he also was kind of branching out into something new in a way. And so this was pretty fascinating. In part two of Goethe's Faust, Faust kind of cons Helen of Troy into leaving her husband for him. And they have a son named Euphorion, who is Helen's son in Greek mythology. And he has this desire to fly, which of course ends in him killing himself because he gets too high and crashes down to his death. Which is why then Helen leaves Faust and kind of she returns to her own realm, I believe, or the afterlife with her son. And so that gets brought up in this. Yeah, it's the one bit of storyline in this movie that you can actually follow. And I didn't realize that was directly from Faust Part 2. And then also in Part 2, Faust does meet the Sphinx. (laughs) Multiple Sphinxes that show up, Mm -hmm. who he kind of fanboys over when he meets them because they're just a classical figure. And then they kind of clash with Mephistopheles which we also see in this. So, I mean, this <laughs> this one was 
interesting and strange. Like basically the way that this is set up, we have this narrator who is talking for the nameless beings from an unnamed part of the universe. And they kind of serve as Satan and God in a way for in this movie, even though Nephistopheles is now a separate character, but they're not necessarily evil, but they do seem to dole out punishment. A lot of these movies do that, though. It talks about, is there really any difference between God and the devil? No, not really, if you think about it a certain way. So it kind of makes sense that they're, these are just you know, all-powerful beings, not necessarily you know, serving good or evil. They just don't want Dr. Faustus to stumble on the answer to some question, because he's really close. Yeah, they're observing this reckless Dr. Faust who seems to, he spends all of his time, he's shown doing all these scientific experiments that sort of consist of him drawing triangles on the wall or like flying a kite. Yeah, cutting, cutting shapes out of construction paper. Yeah, real, it's that's scientific. That's you wouldn't understand. It's scientific. Um, and so he then, but then he runs into trouble when he rescues this woman who's like staring at the ocean. Like she's not drowning. She's just sort of, she's just sort of there. And she ends up being the Sphinx and she rewards him by telling him a story the narration says that isn't a riddle but it is a riddle and her story is it's his dream where she's watching this young man dance around like a fire that's been set on a table in an apartment and he throws this child's drawing into it and then she weeps and faust wants to solve you know her i think because it's not meant to be a riddle but he wants to sort of solve this this riddle of her against the will of these unknown beings from the unknown dimension. And so then what follows is just this sort of instances in which these beings are summoning various human vessels to try and drive Faust into madness for having overstepped his boundaries in whatever way. <laughs> it's never that clear. Yeah, lust shows up and tries to tempt him. That, that's sort of clear. But before that, we get the, like, what what's all that business with this Sphinx where she's in this room and she keeps drinking this liquid that she's not supposed to drink and she seems to be wet all the time and and I don't even know what becomes of the Sphinx but she gets a lot of screen time. I don't know what her function is though, really. Does that relate to anything in, in Faust too? Tell me, expert. No, I'm not an expert, but the here here is my sort of interpretation of this entire movie because yeah, like the first half is about her and then we get all these people trying to tempt Faust. And then we learn that about his past life with Helen of Troy. And that she's this like dark skinned woman who has this like psychedelic bodysuit with massive sleeves and like palazzo pants. And she's dancing by a lemon tree. And all she does is dance. And they have this son who wants to fly, which we get this really, really weird montage of him just jumping up and down on a roof for about five minutes. Uh, and he dies trying to do that. And then uh, essentially like they, they want the beings, I think want a new woman in Faust's life who, to awaken love in him. And then there's Margarita shows up. She's a neighbor, you know, another name for Gretchen. And Helen shows up or an alien in the form of Helen shows up to teach Margareta how to dance so that she can appeal to Faust so that she can learn the, the method of attracting him. But then the narrator of the movie shows up, who is played by the director, and then plays another role where the beings then send somebody down in human form who is Mephistopheles, and this is also played by the director. And it turns out he is the one who ends up being seduced by Margareta's charms. And they have a seduction over a ping pong table. There's a really long 
ping pong game. Um, and, and they, they make out through the ping pong net. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, Mephistopheles has decided that he likes being human or he's been conned into being human or he's, he's been tempted into being human. And all of a sudden, he's uh, a married man with two kids and a wife and, and the movie ends. And we've totally forgotten about Faust completely. Well, he gets, like, turned into a praying mantis or something. Well, I don't know. Like, there are long sequences of this movie where it's just a bunch of birds for a long time, a bunch of giraffes for a long time, some Alka-Seltzer in a glass bubbling for a long time. And I don't know what any of these things are supposed to mean. I kind of felt like this movie... Now, I was trying to look up more information about this, and I think that a lot of this was improvised, which is not a surprise. No, you can you can tell. Yeah, and I also, I kind of think at the end of the day that this felt like a very 1969 number one exercise in improvisation on a theme, you know, and then like, let's just get a bunch of stuff and throw it together and see what the meaning is kind of situation from what I can tell, unless we're totally missing some like cultural, (laughs) there's like, these are like Spanish symbols for something like, I don't know, but I kind of felt like the point of this was that like, that the mystery of life is that life is a mystery, (laughs) Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that the spirits beyond our grasp are controlling us a little bit. I, there, there's a lot about the pain of losing or wanting family in this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of what was happening with the Sphinx. It's like you have this character who's, you know, she has this child's drawing and, and she, you know, the, the drawing gets burnt up by a man. I, maybe this is the loss of innocence, right? Like that she's had her heart broken now she drinks all the time. She's like, all you know, like just soaking wet all the time. And then you have this Helen of Troy who gets broken by the, the loss of her son, the death of her son. And then you have suddenly Margarita who's meant to be seducing Faust. And she does, she turns him into this praying mantis. She manages to sort of like get him. Is and that then Mephistopheles, I don't know. I don't, there, suddenly we one. see a, a mantis and then we see Faust and then it's only a mantis. <laughs> and then we don't see Faust anymore. So well, maybe. But then, like, Mephistopheles, who who sort of is come down to Earth to get Faust, the, the beings tell him, don't linger. They say, you have to do this one task and then immediately come back. But, of course, he, he lingers, and then he just, like, wakes up married with these children and a wife. <laughs> and he doesn't know how it happened. It, it seems like the spirits were trying to warn Mephistopheles from from indulging in the desires of humanity and, and in family, perhaps, and human connection. I think is kind of what this is this is driving towards, if anything. <laughs> yeah, but it also sort of brings it back to the beginning of the whole Faust story. And okay, I've done what I'm supposed to do. I'm married with kids, and I'm following this life as it's been mapped out for me. And it ends with him staring out the window at his kids playing with chalk and and you know looking really dejected. So I guess it's it's sort of a full circle thing here. You know, it just, it goes on and on. And I think that is sort of how all of these Faust stories ends. It, it, it just comes full circle. There's nothing learned. The secret to life is the mystery of it. And to, you know, always, you know, to constantly be trying to unravel the mystery is the way that we're supposed to be living our lives. And, you know, and once we stop seeking, then that's, that's the end. There, there is no point. So why were there so many Faust movies in the 60s? That's what I want to know. I just wanted to talk about Faust. I think, I mean, so having watched all of these, I kind of feel like 
it's kind of something that we've we've talked about anyhow in, in a lot of these episodes, which is that the 60s were this decade of decadence to a degree in this idea that like have we gone too far on breaking boundaries was already looming in people's minds. I mean, you had also then uh, with on top of that, you had fashion trends that were already looking back to the medieval, <laughs> like bell sleeves and natural hair. You had this like a drug culture that relates a lot to or like thought it related to alchemy in a very superficial sort of way. You renewed interest in alternative non monotheistic religions. There was a sort of indulgence in the devil, as it were, the, the non-straight and narrow in the 60s that was fighting hardcore with the straight and narrow, you know, which is the 1960s. No one seems to remember. I think, you know, Mad Men did a good job of showcasing that version of it. To me, I think it must have to do with the fact that people felt stifled and they and they felt like, well, we have everything like we're going to the moon, you know, like, God, like what else is there left? <laughs> Yeah, I think coming from the 50s, like where, you know, it's all about fitting in and this conformity and the path of your life has been prescribed. You're just falling into line and doing exactly what you're supposed to do. I think that, you know, we've talked about this before in other episodes that by the beginning of the 60s, there was a lot of dissatisfaction with this. I mean, you still got your 60s man, like your, your Don Drapers, as you're saying, who felt like this is my taking off point. I'm going to take this this life of luxury that the 50s has brought in for us and, and take it to its ultimate extreme. I'll become the ultimate man, the, the all-powerful all being. Uh, there's sort of that part of the Faust story that we see in a lot of these movies, this idea of like a regular man becoming God, just an all-powerful creature. And, there, and on the other hand, there's just this, um, you know, the more everyday reading of Faust where... We've been following this path that's been prescribed for us, and it's not satisfying. Like, I've, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I've followed all the rules. You know, this is what TV and, and the movies and radio have told me I need to do with my life, and I've done it, and it's not satisfying. And I feel like the Faust story really speaks to that feeling that a lot of people had in their guts, too. And uh, so it, it sort of makes sense to me that Faust was on people's minds. And also, I guess this production of Faust that was captured on film in 1960, this German language one with no English subtitles, was kind of world-renowned. I, mean, I think there happened to be this one like production of the play that just had everybody talking, and so it occurred to a lot of people, oh, this Faust story, you know, I can relate to that. That really feels like what's going on in my life right now. So I think Faust is the story of the 60s. Yeah, so hopefully people are now intrigued by Faust. It's not just a stuffy old thing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you understand that there, there's a really interesting level of depth that sort of ties into so many different aspects of life. At least for me, it really was like this key that unlocked all of these parts of history and, and philosophy and, and alchemy, which is a really intriguing, like the actual medieval alchemy is really strange and interesting. And then this whole primordial consciousness thing is like fascinating, but... Uh, you know, or you can just watch a good movie. <laughs> there are a few here. Like, go watch Seconds and Bedazzled, at least, bare minimum. Yeah. So I think with that, we should let our good friends Drimble Wedge and the Vegetation take us out. Absolutely. With their inertia.
You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.